0: All right, can y'all hear me okay? Thumbs up if you can. All right, great, thanks. So this is our fourth session with anxiety, this 10th seminar by Jacques Lacan. We're going to finish this thing in six. And thankfully, the readings that we got into for today were not crazy. There was some weird stuff, some very interesting stuff, in fact. Um, Buddha's eyelids or lack thereof. Fascinating. Um, we can definitely talk that through as you like. I went ahead and tracked down the statue in question. Check this thing out. I can share the images with you. It's legit. It doesn't have eyes, but it looks like it has eyes. So we can talk about that. There's been a little bit of scholarship out there on this topic. Some of you I know, especially in the Pacifica Graduate Institute crowd are interested in Eastern philosophy and how this connects with things happening in psychoanalysis. Um, In addition to other figures that you've read that have um, a debt to Eastern thought, um, this is one of the places in Lacan's work where you can see his take on it. So in this seminar, he takes a trip to Japan. My understanding is that it's his first of two trips that he took to Japan. And in both cases, he was deeply intrigued by the Zen tradition. And here we have him talking through <clears throat> um, this Bodhisattva statue with the, um, with the apparent eyes that aren't eyes. We'll see if it comes up. I'm not sure it's entirely relevant to what we're doing, um, but it could be. It absolutely could be, especially if tonight we can get to some discussion of the drives. You've heard me mention this before, I've told you that in Lacan you have these four different levels operating. There's need, demand, desire, and drive. And it's set up hierarchically. Getting closer to the drive is better than remaining at the level of need. And I'd say if there's a goal or a horizon for Lacanian psychoanalysis, it's keeping the drive alive, figuring out a way to bring Analyzans into contact with their drives. And tonight, what I think we can also suggest is that if we can get to the level of the drive, I think what we can suggest is that drive, because it is a partial manifestation and realization of desire, is also a defense against anxiety. So part of the shift I wanna make this evening is In addition to making sure we all understand what we mean by anxiety, we also wanna start talking about, okay, now you know what anxiety is, what's the other side of anxiety? How might you coach someone in or out of therapy beyond anxiety? What are some defenses against? We've talked about desire as a defense against anxiety and love as an antidote. To that repertoire tonight, we'll probably add the drive. But I don't want to start there. I want to throw that out as a horizon. And I want to start per usual by taking questions from last time, any key passages or pages you want to make sure that we touch upon tonight. This is your show as much as it is mine. We create these things together.
1: Hey, Sam, how's it going? Great, thank you. Hey, I I uh
2: I wanted to cover page 188 and 189. It's interesting because Lacan barely ever uses case studies. Um, and this is a sort of a privileged and, and sort of a strange case study he has where this woman gets turned on by a car. So uh, yeah, I'm sort of curious about what he's doing here um, and maybe to add something to it, just what's the relationship? What, what is what does she want him to see here? I think is sort of interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you're on page 188. She expresses. Yeah. 180.
2: 188. 189.
0: Yeah. yeah. Small matter whether he desires me, provided he doesn't desire others. There's your clue, and then. Moving down the page, you get some other good stuff here. Um, God, a car. All right. Yeah, thanks. Let's see what we can do with that.
1: Yeah, yeah. 188 to 189. Um, You know, it, it, it ends
0: in this interesting gendered move that he makes about Men's anxiety is linked to the possibility of not being able. And I mean, think about this. He's, here he's playing with um, the Aristotelian modality known as potentiality, which according to Aristotle also is bound up with impotentiality, with impotence, incapacity. Being unable, but think about this too in terms of impotence, as we popularly understand it today, and how that might be linked with men's anxiety. Okay, one eighty eight, 189 Got it. Let's see what we can do with that. Anybody else out there remote controlled? What else do you want to say about being
1: remote controlled? I'm just messing around. Other topics, pages you want
0: to make sure we touch upon, if not delve into tonight.
2: I mean, I'll just add the anxiety point is something that I'm not exactly sure about. So if we can touch upon that tonight, uh, I think that would be really helpful. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So really, just crystallizing as much as we can this definition of anxiety. Um, that that we can do. Uh, this. Oh, will be I think. Uh, so- Go ahead, Cody. Wait, oh, just 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 anxiety
2: <laughs> point. I think you mentioned that in this this these four chapters. This like sort of median point between.
1: Jouy
2: Ah,
0: yes. Yeah. To yeah, find so to he starts yeah. working up this table that culminates on page 174. At right, the yeah. And this is a scale up of a table that he's been developing in the previous few chapters. You can also see it getting started on page 161 and 160, both of which are key passages for us. he's been messing with, I don't know that I've seen him take this further, but 174 seems to be the culminating point, with anxiety as this median function, not a mediator, he says at the top of 174, but a median between jouissance and desire. I think we can explain that. It'll take some work, though, and it's going to take us manipulating this table, taking it apart and re-articulating it along the lines of the graph of desire. But I think we can do it. And I think it might actually prove pretty damn productive as well. So top of 174 and this discussion that really extends through 175 too, where he's breaking down this table
1: and talking us through it. Okay, what else y'all got? Any other must feature items for tonight?
0: Okay. Let's start then by talking about some big others. This is where the discussion begins. In fact, take your book, go all the way back to page four, and you can see this graph of desire. The big other is in each of the key nodal points. There are four, and they have circles around them. So the first we discussed is this capital A in a circle, and then to its left, lower italicized S, meaning signified or meaning according to the big other. Upper left-hand quadrant, capital S parens, barred, capital A other, a signifier of the other's lack is how we read that. That capital S is a signifier. It means somebody is showing you, some authority is showing you that they don't have all their shit together, if we could be a little um, pedestrian about it. Even though in the math theme of the drive, which is in the upper right-hand circle, split subject, lozenge, capital D, that capital D means demand. The big D here comes from the big other, if you will. This is a split subject living their life into, in relation to the demands of a big other. That, according to Lacan in the 60s, is the math theme for the drive. Now, I think we can make something of that. I think we can work with that. What I want to show you, though, is that the structuring nodal points of the graph of desire all have a big other inside them. And this is important to us for understanding anxiety. So let's talk through, by way of review, each of them, and we'll pause in each case and make sure we're all up to speed. So, first, capital A in a circle, the bottom right. Again, we're on page four looking at the graph of desire. This is simply the symbolic. This is the big other as a treasure trove of all of the laws, norms, signifiers, you name it. All of the possible answers, meanings in a given situation. This is very much a complete set. Now, of course, we know that it's not really a complete set because if you follow set theory, you know that any set that purports to contain everything always has to leave one thing out which is nothing. Nothing is always left out. If this is the set of everything, nothing has been excluded. And Lacan's point is precisely that. I think this is one of the most important things to understand about Lacan's thought. The symbolic is structured atop a lack that it cannot process, a nothing a no thing that wanders errantly through the symbolic as its essential ingredient. You see, in order for the symbolic's claim to represent every law or every word in the English
1: language, it has to leave something behind, a leftover, a remnant, something that's ejected but not exterior to There's a kind of extimacy, intimacy
0: combined with an X, something that's outside that has been folded in. And here it's this gap, this nothing, that legitimates the totalizing claim of the symbolic. That's the really important part. Even if the symbolic could account for this nothing, it would push it back underground again, because it needs it. In order to represent everything and have that claim be legitimate, Nothing has to be left left out. So, yes, the symbolic purports to be a complete set. My point here is that it is always leaving one thing behind. And this is where Lacan is going to get lots of conceptual traction. So examples of the big A earlier in this series. I mentioned before my kiddo was born talking to my brother and saying, what do I do when it cries? He says, well, there are only four possible things that you can do. And he listed the four. That was the symbolic in that situation. That was the big other. It was the collection of all the possible reactions I could have to a child crying. The OED, Oxford English Dictionary, any dictionary that purports to contain every word in a given language, that's the symbolic at work. It always purports to have all of the laws. The Library of Congress, is a great example of the big other embodied because they want every single book that has ever been published and every record that has ever been produced to be in their collection. That's what we mean by the big A in circle here. It is a complete set of all the possible records in the world. Now, here's the thing. You can't listen to all the records in the world at the same time. You have to choose a few. Similarly, when my kid cried, I couldn't show up with food, a blanket, an opportunity to sleep, a fresh diaper. Feeding a baby and changing its diaper at the same time is like asking for trouble. I had to pick one. That selection from among the totality of options available to me is what we mean by the big other in the lower left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire. That little s means interpretation, It means signified, which means meaning, meaning according to the big other. So this is a subset of A, a selection from all of the available responses to a crying baby. Right, you can't just open up the OED and read all the words at once. You got to start somewhere. And where you start is a selection from that wider set. For those of you that are working in the clinical field, what else is the DSM? But this volume that purports to represent all of the, I shouldn't say mental disorders, characterological abnormalities. And you go through the list and you can figure out where your client, where your patient, where your analyst Zand fits. That's the symbolic. The DSM is the big other. So don't get all caught up in this crazy business of Lacanians talking about the other, the big other, this, that and the other. What we're talking about here is the symbolic. It's a totalizing set that nevertheless always leaves a something that is nothing out. Now. To its left, though, in the graph of desire, we see a selection from this. This is me choosing to show up with a diaper. I selected from all the possibilities that my brother told me I could choose from, and I showed up with one. This is meaning according to the big other. And you'll recall how we discussed this. This marks the expression of need in language, known as demand. The parent or the primary caregiver interprets the cry of the child and transforms it from an expression of need to a demand that the parent can then make sense of. That's how we get from need to demand in this developmental case. Um, You can see this, though, oftentimes in regular everyday life beyond dealing with little babies and stuff. If you want to know where this this other full of answers exists, it's in that person, maybe even a parent of yours, who always has an answer to the question. Someone whom you've never heard say, I don't know. You've heard me mention this before, and it's true. But my dad is one of these people. He's a great guy. But when you ask him a question, even if he doesn't know the answer, he will just stone cold make some shit up and he's dead serious. Now you might say, hey, wait, what are you doing? He might say, well, I'm just speculating. I'm just guessing that that's there and that this is what's going on. I had to learn this the hard way. About a decade ago, I bought a house. It was an old place. We were doing a lot of work on it. This is how my dad and my brother always do it. One of us buys an old house and the other two show up and then we punch it out and get the thing fixed up and ready. Well, one of the things I learned when it was my turn is that my dad shows up and he likes to wonder, what is behind wall number one could there be some electrical in there might that be the exit line for the tub he wonders what's behind wall number one and what he proposes very seriously is what he calls an exploratory cut where he basically gets a sawzall if you know what these are it's a reciprocating saw and he puts a hole in the wall and then puts his head in there and just looks around I'm like, fool, that is not good business. He's like, well, that's how we're going to find out what's in here. He had an answer to the question. What's behind wall number one? He had an answer about how to get answers. This is somebody, a big other embodied, literally apparent here, who can never admit that they don't have the answers. In other words, who can never admit that they lack. Now, the reason why this is important for us is that if you look above, this iteration of the big other, you see the opposite. Not a big other that has all the meanings. And has selected the appropriate. Above this, you have a signifier of a big other that lacks. This happens when you realize that the person you're dealing with doesn't have all their shit together. The person whom you perhaps thought had all the answers turns out to be just a normal person like you. This would be the point at which my dad, to continue with the example, might stammer a little bit when I ask him a question about who knows what. That would be a signifier of the fact that he's about to make some shit up because he doesn't have an answer. So that's a really clean way to read the upper left hand quadrant of the big other. This is a signifier of
1: lack. In one of these big others. Something seems to be off missing. In
0: this individual. Of course, we know that all big others lack for the reason I pointed out earlier regarding set theory. Because any claim to totality and containment of everything must by necessity leave something out of something that is nothing. And when that nothing pops up, this is where the state, this is where the big other, this is where the parent stammers. This is where the cop drops his baton. This is where something in the otherwise polished edifice of authority reveals that it's a little bit cracked, a little bit broken. So you see this constantly in media portrayals of the president of the United States, Joe Biden. One of the classic ones that keeps popping up at this point is him after delivering a speech, turning away from the podium and looking around as though he doesn't know where he is. Either he's looking for somebody who's no longer there or he's trying to find his way off stage. He can't quite figure it out. And then some clever memer writes the caption underneath me when blah, 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 blah. The reason why this is significant is because this is the head of state, the executive. Of the executive branch in our country, we expect them to be clean, polished, damn near perfect, which isn't to say that they're not mistaken, It's to say that they're always on top of shit. So. There are numerous examples of each of these big others. You'll notice what I'm leaving aside right now is the definition of the drive, but this is what we have so far for the first three big others that concern us. The reason why I've scaled it up this way is that when we see a signifier of lack in the big other, in some authoritative figure, We can't help but wonder where their desire is pointed. You see, if someone or something lacks, that means that it leaves something to be desired. That means that it experiences desire. A display of lack tells us that somebody is a desirous being just like us. Not somebody like the big A in a circle who has everything. You see, the big A in the circle, the proper big other, has everything. It contains everything. Across from that, a signifier of lack in the other shows you that no, on the contrary, this is a big other who's missing something. And as a result, probably desires it. Now, you can see why I've got this scaled up, because the next question is, what does that have to do with me? Is it something about me that the big other lacks? Is it something that I have that they want? How am I caught up in the desire of the big other? Which is why, immediately after presenting the Graph of Desire, also Lacan shifts to the praying mantis example, which is where we started our work four sessions ago. I won't rehearse the example because you know it all too well. It's important, though, that the female praying mantis is big, desirous, and perplexing to us there in our ambiguous mask. This is how we start
1: with anxiety. Anxiety occurs somewhere along the way there for the neurotic. The starting place. For anxiety.
0: Is a breakdown of fantasy. And on page four, you can see fantasy midway between the two desires. Desirous big others that I was talking about. Fantasy, the math theme for fantasy, a split subject, living their life in relationship to little a, our key topic for last time and this tonight, is midway between these two big others. And when fantasy begins to falter, when we start to lose traction on what we think other people want for us, we usually respond to them in one of two ways. If we turn right out of fantasy and head up to a signifier of the lack in the other, for the neurotic, that's going to be the path of anxiety. If fantasy starts to falter and we turn right out of fantasy in the graph of desire, we see the big other as desirous and we freak out. Because the reason why we have fantasy in the first place is because we don't know what we want. We are split subjects, hence the split subject in the math theme for fantasy, living our life in relationship to what we think other people want. Now, I've already told you how we got to that point, from desire for, to desire of, to desire as. This is a scale up for fantasy. But now that we're here at fantasy, there sometimes occur moments When we lose traction and we start to realize, holy shit, I don't know what I want, which is why I built this fantasy around what I imagine your desires to be. But it turns out I just saw a signifier of your lack, which tells me that you don't fucking know what you want either. OMG, you're just like me. That's what we're talking about here. You don't know what you want either. That is a cause for anxiety. This is the seedbed for anxiety with the neurotic. Now, the pervert enjoys all of this. The pervert says, oh, you're incomplete. You don't know what you want. I'm sure it's me. Climb on top and find out.
1: Let me be what daddy told me I couldn't, which is to say, your phallus
0: we'll come to that in a minute and i say daddy of course in a highly figurative sense because what i'm talking about is a paternal function the paternal function comes in and says mommy or maternal function whoever occupies that position does not have the phallus and baby cannot be it for her this is that dialectic in lacan between having and being The pervert is somebody who who disavows that moment and says, oh, on the contrary, Poppy, I can absolutely be that for her. I accept that she doesn't have it, but by God, if I'm not going to try and be it for her. That's a disavowal of the paternal function. And of course, in the case of the psychotic, where the paternal function is completely foreclosed, like it never even happened, the whole thing is just right over their heads. We may come to that a little bit later, but it has been a kind of leitmotif for some of the work that we've been doing. Now, when fantasy falters, and let's be clear about this, this is one of those moments where you no longer feel sure that you're, I don't know, dressing like everybody thinks you should dress where you're not quite sure that this is what everybody wants for you. This could be one of those moments where you have, you're have you at a fork in the road in your life and you've talked to all the great advisors that you have and you've asked them, should I do X or should I do Y? And you get two great people giving you two completely different answers. I'm like, wait a minute, my fantasy is that if I can just do what you want, then I'll be whole again, then I'll be straight, we'll be good, it's all, nah. Fantasy breaks down in these moments. The other option is to turn left out of fantasy and head back down to a big other who's able to tell you what it all means. So this is not anxiety. This is this recursive, regressive cycle of demand, that Lacan talks about in the 40s and 50s of this book. We've, we mapped this one already, so I won't go through it again. Again, this is all by way of review. And what that basically says is, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm no longer certain what it is that you want for me. But you know what, Big Other? Come on. I know that you know what you want for me. So just tell me what it is. This is what the neurotic wants more than anything, as Lacan puts it in his seminar. For the big other to issue him or her a demand. Tell me what to do. That left turn out of fantasy back down into a big other that has all the answers and can choose them diligently. Is A demand for the other to issue a demand. And you'll recall what we did with this. The split subject courses their way back through the graph of desire all the way up until demands are all emptied out at what Lacan in this seminar calls the bottom barrel of demand. D zero. And the only thing that the big other can reply to after your repeated requests that they issue a demand. They can only reply by saying,
1: show me your castration. What I want is what splits you. What I
0: want is for you to be split and to show it to me. Now we'll get into these details again tonight, but this is what we're seeing on page after page early on in the seminar what the neurotic does not want to do is to show up and present their castration to the big other this is a roundabout way of getting at exactly what they tried to avoid by turning left at the faltering of fantasy namely anxiety the neurotic source of anxiety is when the big other forces
1: them to show up for circumcision or at least let me be clear, to prove that they've been circumcised. Show me.
0: Prove that you've been circumcised. Show me where you've been cut. Show me, in other words, what you lack, in this case, a foreskin. Circumcision is also a key theme throughout this seminar, as you've seen. It keeps coming back to this topic again and again and again. Why? Because it's the great example of little a, which is that little piece of flesh, which is very important here that it's a part of the body, that is cut off and as leftover, as a remainder, as waste is cast aside, little a as your first lost object. And the basic structure for the human subject's relationship to their body from here on out. Lacan says all this. This is not me just making shit up. It's right on the page in front of us. So we have these two choices. When fantasy falters, we can choose to deal with the other as desirous and run the risk of anxiety, or we can force them to issue a demand. But all that really does is prolong the inevitable. Which is them demanding to see the evidence of our lack. Why? So they can take it. Anxiety is when your lack has been taken by somebody else. Or as Lacan playfully puts it, when lack itself is lacking. Now, this is not more complicated than having a smothering, imminently present, enveloping primary caregiver who never gives the kid any breathing room. What's being taken from us in moments of anxiety is space between ourselves and another person. So in a good relationship, for instance, as grownups, you can tell your partner that you need a little space. You can say things like, I need to go get some air. I need to just take a break. Hell, maybe you need to take a break from the relationship. That's how much space you need. And sometimes at the end of a phone conversation, things might get intense. Like, you know what? I just, I got to go. We can't. I can't talk about this with you right now. We say shit like that. Those are all ways of staving off anxiety by imposing space between ourselves and other people. What anxiety does is it never lets us hang up the phone. Anxiety is what, ha- is what happens when we forget how to take space in relationships. And the reason we forget is because that space has already been taken from us by our partner, usually, the same way that mommy took it from us. Or if yours was a daddy. Maternal functions can be performed by whomever. My point here is that to see the other as desirous is dangerous. It's dangerous because it threatens to take from us the very cause for existence. Namely, the cause of desire. What else is depression but waking up in the morning and having no desire? This is the worst form of human life. The worst experience in the world is to have no desire to not want to do anything and to feel like you can't do anything to have your desire taken from you is usually an indication that somebody has poached your lack they have swiped your cause taken the space that you need in order to be yourself and enveloped you In their presence. Now we had a formula for this, which I'm going to bring up again. Just to give us a sense.
1: By way of a jolt. What we're up to.
0: Okay, do you all see this black screen? Thumbs up. Okay, the formula that we were working with looked something like this
1: The desire of the big other, here they are, in relationship to the cause of our desire
0: as split subjects. And the way we read this as is as follows. If you just look at this side of the equation, you've got a picture of what it looks like to experience desire as a subject. Here is the cause of our desire, which is always lack. This is the experience of lack. Little a here symbolizes what it feels like to miss out, to feel like you don't
1: have something. This is the object. This is what we want. Down here though is why we want
0: it. What happens when anxiety strikes is that a desirous other shows up and is larger than that which defines us. And they take it for themselves.
1: The cause of our desire becomes the object of the other's desire. This is anxiety.
0: If you want a formula for it, this is it. The desire of a big other larger than the cause of ours makes our cause of desire their object of desire. And as a result, fucks us up, to put it bluntly. Now, as usual, I will save these. um, Even though I believe that we have this one already in the books. Now, while we have this in front of us. I can see you, but I bet you can't see me. I don't know. Actually, can you see me still or or, oh, you do? Okay, great. That's wonderful because I can see you too. So looking at this formula. Uh, what
1: questions do you have so far? I kind of haven't wrapped my head around our lack um, is the object of the other's desire. Like, I get it, but like, is there, like, another example that you can use, like, that can kind of solidify what that really means
0: well let's march it back a little bit let's imagine a childhood scenario where let's say you've got um a parent who is frequently unhinged that could mean um every friday night you know they're coming home drunk but you might not be sure how drunk they are and you're not quite sure how they're gonna fuck with you or your other parent or your siblings in those moments. So here is a parent that is wildly unpredictable, overwrought, inconsistent, in short, dangerous to us. A child in a, growing up in a situation like this is gonna spend all their time worrying about the future. What is about to happen? What are they gonna do when they get home? What's gonna happen to my little brother? I would really like to leave the house but I feel like I need to be there to protect him. What's going to occur if I stick around? What's going to occur if I don't stick around? In this moment, the child spends all their time anxiously anticipating what might happen next. What the big other might do when they get home from the bar. In this moment, we see anxiety because the child is overwhelmed by the unpredictability of the big other in their life, in this case, a parent. That feeling of being overwhelmed and enveloped, completely preoccupied by what mood the other is going to be in is a definition of anxiety. And the reason why it's anxiety and the reason why it functions as a lack of lack is because you are so preoccupied and so immersed in all the different possibilities of what might go wrong when daddy or mommy gets home on friday night that there's no room for you this is a kid who does not live in a household that is a containing or holding environment for them this is a child whose container is leaky is porous It doesn't provide them with the requisite safe space to be imaginative, to be playful, to sleep at ease, to just kind of drift off. I'll give you an example of this. One of my favorite things that happens at my house is when my kid gets into the shower. I like when she's in the shower because it gives me a minute to be like, okay, we got dinner done. What's the next move here? It just gives me a second to kind of like check in. But the reason I really like it when she's in the shower is because she sings when she's in there. She makes up songs. I have like a glass shower door that she writes on and she writes, draws little pictures. She pees in there. She hangs out. She does all kinds of weird shit. She's in her own world singing her little songs. The reason why that makes me happy is that it tells me that she feels safe enough, held enough, contained enough in my house to be able to just kind of like be a kid. She's not worried that someone's going to come charging through the door and do some crazy ass shit. She is able to just be in there with plenty of space between her and the adults in her life. If she were an anxious kid, she would be in the shower, constantly calling for me, wanting to make sure the door was locked before she got in there. She would be completely preoccupied with all the possible uh, interruptions, insinuations, that an adult might have, stumbling into the bathroom, screaming on the other side of the wall she's not worried about any of that and as a result she has the space to pursue her own desire she sings songs about like little relationships boyfriends and girlfriends and stuff like that princes and princesses she draws pictures of landscapes that aren't in the household little mountains little houses and trees animals and stuff She couldn't do that if she was anxious. So one of the tests, for instance, I'm no psychologist, but I've heard that this is one of the tests for how well a kid is doing is how easily are they able to immerse themselves in imaginative play? How carefree are they able to just slip into play? So this would be more like before you get to structured talk therapy, maybe more along the lines of like what happens in play therapy. And a kid who's really guarded, who lives with anxiety, is going to be a kid who who doesn't allow themselves to slip into imaginative play as easily. They might be defended. They might be avoidant. I don't know what the proper terms are for this kind of stuff. But this would be perhaps a red flag for the psychologist. And they might wonder, okay, what's this kid's home life like that they feel like they have to be so guarded around others? You could see for instance you know drop a kid off at school and you'll see kids that have separation anxiety especially in the first week especially among like kindergarteners and first graders and preschoolers they can't let go of the parent now that's a pretty normal thing but major separation anxiety that doesn't go away suggests something think about it the child is so used to the overwhelming presence of an unpredictable parent, they're so used to it that they can't let that parent go when they finally have a chance to flee and go to school and have that parent not around. Anxiety, like every characterological abnormality and every maladaptive trait we develop, it can become habitual. You might not like it, but at least you know it. It's familiar. So these are some examples. The reason why we call this lack as lacking is because in this case, the kid doesn't feel like they have a sufficient buffer zone between themselves and the desirous parent. Let me give you one more example, Desiree, because I think your question is a really good one here. Think about a child that hears a primary caregiver whispering to another primary caregiver in the other room. And they come out of their bedroom and they say, what are you guys talking about? Now, one primary caregiver could turn to the child and say, we're just talking about how big your dad's cock is. The kid's gonna be like, whoa, 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 what, I didn't know daddy kept chickens. That's a bad answer, right? A better answer is we're talking about adult stuff. You don't have to worry about it. Go back to your room, don't worry about it. We're just talking about adult stuff. Or or you say something like this, oh, it's just boring work stuff. We're just talking about the chores we're gonna do this weekend, even though you're totally having a fight about who's gonna vacuum the floor. So what this does is the primary caregiver imposes a barrier. Imposes some distance between the
1: issues that preoccupied them. And the child. That imposure of
0: distance is a preservation of the child's ability to lack to have an opening or a space between them and their big others. The bad answer is the one when the child shows up where the parent says, yeah, we're just talking about how we might not be able to make rent this month, and so there's a good chance we're probably going to have to go live at grandma's again. You think that kid is going to sleep well that night? Absolutely not. That kid has now been introduced to anxiety. What's been taken from them is the requisite space that children need between kiddo issues and grown-up issues lacan would say this is the basic definition of trauma for lacan trauma is just whatever you're not ready for so for instance you can be a grown-ass person and pull up at the intersection see somebody get hit by a car with their brain spilling out and fucking lose it that is a traumatic event because you are not used to seeing Brain on pavement. That same event, though, for the EMT who's sitting in the passenger seat of your car is not traumatic because they are used to seeing brain on pavement. Trauma for Lacan is not a complicated concept, it's being exposed to something that you're not ready for. And the bigger the deal, the sharper the exposure the less preparedness, the more traumatic it is. This is the weird thing about humans. We are incredibly adaptable. Second only, I would say, to our ability to use hands for something other than locomotion. People talk about the opposable thumb, but it's really the whole hand. Our manual capacity is what enabled us to become these beings. But right up there with it, what the hand in turn did was it made us one of the world's most adaptable organisms it's why we are one of the only species that lives on every single inch of this earth we can get used to anything i used to work with some guys in an anger management group and they were all ex-cons and some of them been down for 30 years some been down for five years old young we had grandpas we had all ages in this group Some of them acted in ways and even professed very directly that they would just rather be back in the can. Like, at at least in the can, I had respect. I knew what was what. I had my place, three hots in a cot. I was in business. Out here, I'm sleeping in my fucking car. Nobody will hire me. I can't get shit together. My kids won't talk to me. I talked to them more when I was in prison than when I got out. And now I'm tempted to use again. And I got in a fight this weekend. And I got arrested again. And it's almost at some level that these guys, some of them, not a lot, but some of them were willing their way back to prison. And you'd ask them, is that a good place to be? Fuck no. Trippin, that's the worst place you could be in your life, son. And yet, there I go, right back into it, because it's
1: what I know. Humans are adaptable like that. So we can get used to anything, and events
0: that were traumatic in the past, we can become numb to them later. But usually it works out in different ways. The child who experiences traumatic violence is the kid who also becomes a bully at school. Not always, but that can happen. The thing that they can't handle in their own lives, like everything else human, gets projected right back out into the world. Is this sufficient as an example and an answer to your question, Desiree?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to clarify the part, you know, so... Just for the first example is um, oh. the object of the desire and use the, the caregiver impinging on, giving, impinging on the ability of giving the child a holding environment. So then what is the object of the desire? Like having a, a, a holding enough environment? Like, I, sorry, I'm like my brain's just trying to kind of yeah. put it in like structure or something yeah um
0: there are two good bumper stickers that can help us through this one is misery loves company and so also with desire people who are exorbitantly desirous usually enjoy producing desire in others
1: extreme forms of desire people who are terribly overwrought
0: can sometimes be the people who most provoke similar feelings in others. You can run this through Lacan's formulation for Hysteria and come up with some pretty good stuff.
1: The other one that I like is Hurt People Hurt People. Almost inevitably, the overly desirous parent who provokes anxiety in the child is themselves anxious as hell. And if you're anxious as hell, it makes you feel like the world is always coming after you, always closing in on you. So you might feel like, in other words, that you need and would welcome a little bit of
0: lack, a little bit of space. So why not take it from somebody else? Why not take theirs? Maybe that'll finally help me. Maybe if I take your little A, I won't feel so smothered and enveloped in my own life. So to summarize here, the overwhelming enveloping, smothering presence of some parent leaves no space, no room, no opening, or no gap in which a kid can be a kid. What's taken from the child in this moment is lack, is the space needed to cultivate their own desire. And that's how we get, again, this definition of anxiety, where lack itself is lacking let me put it a little more clearly in line with the formula that you have in front of you and again these are all sessions that are being recorded so you can go back and and with this phrase later but let me be really crystal clear about this the object of the other's desire is the opening in which i would otherwise develop my own that's what that formula says the object of their desire is the opening in which I would otherwise formulate my own. It's the cause of my desire lack that the desirous other takes from me when they envelop me. Never give me a moment to myself. That's what happens when anxiety strikes. In other words, it is my capacity for desire, my
1: ability to want. That's missing when anxiety strikes. This is why desire is a defense against anxiety. And when anxiety hits.
0: What it preys upon. Is your capacity for desire. The key question here for us, the most difficult of the bunch. Is this thing, this object of anxiety, this little a. That I take to be the core of what Desiree is asking here. Like, what is this lack that gets taken from a kid? Lacan himself admits that this is a pretty difficult topic.
1: People ask him, what is the object of anxiety? Because we've heard from Sartre,
0: Heidegger, and others that anxiety means having no object. Fear has an object. You know what you're afraid of. Anxiety, though, doesn't have one. Lacan's response is, ah, 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 ah. Anxiety does have an object, but it's not like any other object in the world. It's not like a bear chasing you down the street. And so the phrase that he uses here, he says anxiety is not without an object. I'm going to stop sharing here. You've seen this formula enough. So that we can look at the book together. The first place that we talked about last time where Lacan trots out this. Object cause this object that's not really an object is on page 89 at the top. What we're really getting at here is a definition of of little a. This little a that is the cause of desire that fucks with Lacanians left and right. The top of 89 as we discussed
1: last time. Anxiety is not without an object. But again,
0: it's not an ordinary object. The object in question here is elusive. It's enigmatic. It's obscure. It's unusual. It's not an object, but what Lacan is eventually going to call an object cause. Check out page 131. He takes another swipe at this topic. At the beginning of Chapter 10. There it is again. Anxiety is not without an object. He's emphasizing it. He's not just going to come out and say anxiety has an object and the object is this. He has to say it a little weird because he wants to like shift your perspective a little bit. He wants our perspectives to shift a little bit. What we're looking at here is not really an object. I'll be clear about this in a second, but right now let's just look at what he's got here. This doesn't mean that this object is accessible by the same path as all the rest. I've already emphasized that to say that a discourse that is homologous or similar to any other part of scientific discourse can symbolize this object, can put us alongside it in the relationship of symbol to which we shall be coming back later, would be yet another way of getting rid of anxiety. Although anxiety sustains this relationship of not being without an object, it is on the condition that we are not committed to saying, as one would of another object, which object is involved nor even to be able to say which. In other words, anxiety introduces us with the accent of utmost communicability to a function that is, for our field, radical, the function of lack. 131 is really the Bible for what he's working at here in this seminar. He's telling you, that this is the big deal topic, the function of lack. The reason why he wants to study anxiety, among others, is that it turns us on to this very odd enigmatic field of objectality. Now that is key. Objectivity is what modern science is into. It's what pure reason is all about. Lacan's gonna say what he deals with is objectality, which has nothing to do with ca co- nothing to do with objects. It's fundamentally about causes. Objectality is about what he calls the pathos of the cut. It's about the cause of desire, not its object. that's what that formula I drew for you tonight shows. The cause of your desire, lack, becomes the object or the target of someone else's. What they want is to see you squirm. They want to see you fumble. This also, don't forget, is the reason why Lacan keeps coming back to sadism and masochism. The sadist doesn't get off, again, on inflicting pain. What they get off on is provoking anxiety. The sadist gets out the whip. Don't forget. And what gets them off is not hitting you with it, but showing it to you. Along with the pronouncement verging on legislation itself. You've been a very bad boy. You deserve this. I hereby pronounce you, I hereby decree capital punish, you are about to receive, fill in your basic court rhetoric here, 50 lashes across your bare, elderly, white, propertied, extremely wealthy, heteronormative CEO of
1: Twitter ass. And that's what happens. But before that whipping occurs, there's
0: this elaborate linguistic setup, a staging of the event. This is where the sadist enjoys, because this is where the white man in ties begins to squirm and saying, yes, I have been a bad boy. You're right. I've been pilfering from people for years or whatever the fuck it is. That provocation of anxiety
1: is what gets The sadist off. That's the source of their enjoyment.
0: And the masochist, in turn, gets off on provoking anxiety in others at the fundamentally dilapidated state of their being. The masochist gets off on only wearing shredded, used clothes around their conservative parent. So the parent can say, what the hell? You dress like a homeless person. Why can't you dress a little bit nicer? You're never going to get a job if you leave the house dressed like that. Listen to how they get all riled up just based on how you dress. This is a really classic thing among teenagers, right? The teenager comes downstairs ready to go to school, dressed in a way, acting in a way, looking in a way that the parent or primary caregiver doesn't approve, and the parent or the primary caregiver loses their shit. Saying things like, why would you do that to yourself? Or as someone I once knew, mother told her, why are you trying to make yourself ugly? Now, I'm not saying that this old friend of mine was a masochist. But if she were, this would be a source of enjoyment for her,
1: watching her mother squirm in this way. Let's pause there and see where you are. I'll always give us a moment, but not too many, because... We have other bridges to cross. What would you say is the difference between anxiety and paranoia?
0: That is such a great question, Oliver. At a couple of moments tonight, I have been inclined to say that paranoia is the peak of anxiety. Now, what we know in the Lacanian tradition is that paranoia is a subset of the clinical structure known as psychosis, right? Anxiety is something that neurotics are usually more wrapped up in. But here's the thing. There are some Lacanians who say that there is no passageway between these clinical structures. I don't believe that. And I think there's evidence, ample evidence in Lacan to say that he doesn't believe that either. Now, there's probably evidence to the contrary as well. That's why little a is so difficult, because Lacan was constantly shifting the meaning of this thing over like 25 years it's a challenging phenomenon because it's there with him at the start of his career and there with him at the end of his career and it means different things at each stage we're at one stage right now we're at the stage in which little a becomes affiliated with the real that's why he's talking about the pound of flesh we're going to talk about that tonight prior to this it was more closely associated with fantasy you see that little a in there an imaginative prop Later on in life, it'll be at the center of the Baromian links. So little A is all over this guy's work, and depending on what year you find him, it's going to mean something different. So what I'm giving you is what it means for him in the early 60s around the topic of anxiety. What we know about Lacan, though, is that the ego has a fundamentally paranoid structure. There's a very real sense in which the basic figure of normalcy, namely having a functioning ego, almost certainly overly functioning ego, is itself a kind of paranoia. The ego is a paranoid MFR. Each of our egos is fundamentally paranoid, which is why the temptation of narcissism is so great. Everybody is interested in me. Everybody wants to know what I'm up to. I'm the center of everyone's attention. What else is that but a paranoiac structure? So what I'd like to suggest is that it's not only tempting, but I think legit to read paranoia as an extreme form of anxiety. And let's not forget that we find ourselves here on April 20th 420, the 420th of days. Think about the effects of anxiety on the verge of paranoia that some of us have experienced. And not just from smoking pot, man. Think about some of the effects of psychedelic use when that shit goes south. Some of you have been on trips that you wish would just stop. It's like the 14th hour and you're like, holy shit, I have to go to work. Is this over yet? And think of all the figments that have chased you around the room in those late nights. Doesn't mean you've lost your mind. Hell, if anything, it means you probably found it. So, yeah, Oliver, I think it's a great question. My inclination, and here when I answer these questions, I want you to I want you to know all this. I'll always try and tell you when what I'm saying is something from me, but rest assured. When I tell you something's from me, and it's in this Lacanian context, I am building on the logic presented by Lacan's argument. Logic which, I would mind you, sometimes he himself doesn't even follow. So there are times when it is important to out-Lacan Lacan. Because sometimes even he himself gets twisted up in these concepts. But we, with the availability of hindsight, Don't forget, he's doing all of this shit live. Yeah, he has some notes, but this is a transcript. Come on, man. Thousands of pages of somebody up on stage, 20 years, dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. You know they're going to slip up a little bit here and there. Some people like to make a big fuss out of these moments. I don't see them as important or unimportant. I read Lacan for the coherence and for the systematicity of his work. Second only to Hegel in terms of systematicity in Western thought. Way up there, right up there with Heidegger in terms of developing a systematic line of thought and Kant that hangs together conceptually. And Lacan's does that. So oftentimes I'll build on structures and conceptual moves in his work to say things like I just did, which is that, yes, paranoia is the peak of anxiety, if you think about it. Now there are going to be some big differences, and this is where we would get in a row with the Lacanians, because the clinical structure of paranoia is anchored in psychosis, which has a very different relationship to the symbolic. than the neurotic who experiences anxiety. So we could dig in here and find all kinds of ways why paranoia could never be an extension of anxiety but for our purposes, I think it's useful to think about this on a spectrum where paranoia would be the outer limit. Think about it. The world is out to get me. All of these enormous imaginary others are bearing down on me constantly. The aliens are trying to read my thoughts, so I have to wrap my head in tinfoil. Vladimir Putin is hacking into my bank account Who's listening to this Skype call? Oh, I don't use Zoom because Zoom is a highly surveilled platform, and it's not safe. Our, our discussions are not uh, protected there. i got to change my passwords. Did you know the average millennial changes their passwords more than they have sex? Put that in your fucking pipe on 420. <laughs> so does that mean that they are all psychotic? No. It means that anxiety can be tinged with paranoia, the same way that the ego, when functioning all too
1: well, can have a paranoiac structure. Great question. I hope that answers it.
0: What else y'all got out there?
2: Yeah, I have another question, um, sort of to Oliver's question as well, Um, but taking it down in the direction of sort of the depressive or the melancholic, I think. I I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, like Freud and his, his essay, morning and melancholia, it's all about the loss of the object. Right. However, I think if we, if, if if we read Lacan seriously about anxiety and sort of thought about it, um, thought about melancholia in, in a similar fashion, it would be sort of this, I don't know, traumatic kind of enveloping of the object right? That I have to get the fuck away from this thing. How do I get away from it? I mean, an interesting fantasy, and then I'll shut the fuck up, is um, of the depressive is I need to get away from society. I need to get away from all big others. I mean, you think of uh, a good example is like Christopher McCandless, right? Like Into the Wild, that guy, or anybody mm-hmm. who is slightly depressed and needs to get away. They'll have that fantasy of breaking away from sort of these symbolic uh, structures right um, or, or you know getting away from the big other uh, which determines their social existence so yeah. so yeah maybe I don't know I guess what I'm trying to say is that maybe the melancholic is the is the peak of one side of anxiety you
0: know, yeah. But, yeah because melancholic in either case the object is lost the melancholic melancholia, they, they can't let go of it they can't let it go So mourning, unlike melancholy, is when you've actually let the object go. The melancholic can't quite let it go. The fucking thing is gone, but they can't quite let it go. And that's how we get, you know people like this, where you you encounter them years later and you're like, damn, you are still shitty with me about that. You just cannot let it go. There will even be times When you'll meet somebody from your past and they'll be talking to you and it'll be like they're talking to somebody else. They're looking right at you, but you don't actually identify with their addressivity. They are speaking to you, but you do not feel addressed. Because you're not the person to whom they're speaking. Or, for instance, you'll be talking with somebody and they'll say some shit to you and you'll be like, damn, you must have had a bad day. Because clearly I didn't do anything to provoke that kind of a response from you. Holy shit, what world did you just project onto me? Let it go. Truly important here in the shift from melancholy to mourning. And I want to say that, Cody, this is actually a really great way to define what Lacan is doing with an object here around anxiety. I'm glad you bring this up. Little a is a lost object. It's the first and to some extent, the only lost object. It's the symbol of whatever object has been lost. Let me be clear. When Lacan says anxiety is not without an object, the object in question is not an object, but an opening in which an object has been removed, is missing and is thus experienced as lost in short lacking let me be clear about that Let me say it again what we're dealing with here is not an object but the opening a void
1: if you will in which an object has been removed and is now missing and
0: crucially experienced as lost
1: That experience of loss is lack. It's to feel like you're missing
0: something that you want so badly that sometimes you feel like you even need it. Now, we have seen this
1: before. The symbol that Lacan initially offers for this space is this. This is the space,
0: or the opening, that is created when a certain
1: object has been removed. And this is that object, the phallus. Now let's recall very quickly
0: how we mapped this thing out. So there's this pre edible triangle that Lacan is messing with here, where you've got the child. You'll recall this from our early work together. And then the maternal function, occupied by whoever plays that part for you. And the child initially, you'll recall, has desire for the body of this person. Care for me, take care of me, et cetera, et cetera. What the child notices is that this primary caregiver also is interested in other stuff. It can be their phone. It can be their job. It can be whatever and wherever. Their attention is directed other than at the child, and so what the kid learns to do. Is to identify with this in order to gain access to that. Here we see the
1: desire of. Mother. Transforming and affecting.
0: The child's desire itself now. I say this is pre-Oedipal.
1: It's fundamentally imaginary. All right. Pre-edipal here, too, so you can recall it. <clears throat> this is the imaginary phallus. it's whatever you imagine the primary caregiver is interested in addition to you are you all with me so far on this okay now this is where a lot of post freudian work
0: begins and ends if it even gets this far what makes lacan great is that he does not stop there in the least because he turns this imaginary triangle into a
1: symbolic square by introducing another person, the paternal function. This is the name,
0: and don't forget it's also the no.
1: Of the father. We've been over this, so I'm going to move fast. What this individual does, as you well know, is it cuts in and says, Child,
0: you cannot be this for the maternal function. And whoever's playing the maternal function, and you don't have it in the first place. So here's that riff again Mommy doesn't have it. And baby can't be it for her. This process of cutting in fundamentally negates the imaginary phallus. And what it does, in effect, I want to draw this live and in motion so you can
1: see the effect that this has. The effect looks something like this. Do you see what I'm doing? I am imposing distance. I am opening up a gap or a space between the child and the primary
0: caregiver. This gap or space is symbolized By a, which is why I've always told you that little a is the irreducible minimum distance between two points that allows them to remain distinct. The goal of the paternal function is to intrude on this imaginary triangle. Subtract the phallus and all of the desire games that the child plays with the maternal figure and introduce some space in between here. Space that is initiated by the logic of prohibition. She doesn't have it and you can't be it for her. Little a is the symbol of that irreducible space that the paternal function when it is accomplished,
1: imposes between these two figures. Anxiety is what happens when the primary caregiver totally overrides this
0: and starts to encroach upon the child. In whatever
1: capacity it is
0: now we have a child who is not contained and held but for those of you that are interested in other post freudian trajectories this is a child that now suffers from impingement this is a child that is impinged upon when lacan uses the word anxiety you can substitute it for what british object relations folks refer to as impingement I'm not saying you can do so cleanly, but I'm saying that you can render that analogous. So here it is again. What we're dealing with anxiety and anxiety is not an object, but the opening in which an object has been removed. In this case, an imaginary object is, in, is missing and is experienced as lost, in short, lacking. Little a is the symbol for this opening. After the imaginary phallus has been removed. And if this triangle that we were working with was imaginary, you know where I'm going to go with this. The square introduced by the paternal function with these four nodal points is not
1: imaginary, but symbolic. this negative fee that a comes to replace is the space the opening a gap some breathing room
0: left after the pursuit of the imaginary phallus has been prohibited mom can't have it child can't be it this is exactly also What the psychotic forecloses, what the pervert disavows, and what the neurotic represses. That's important, but let me be clear about that. Repression has built into it an acceptance. In fact, if you look at repression and you march it back through all the various phases, you're going to have a system that has like six different layers, each retroactively presupposed by its predecessor. You can read this in Freud and Lacan. Repression presupposes negation. Negation
1: presupposes affirmation. An affirmation presupposes the name of the father. Which presupposes an imaginary
0: order into which the name of the Father intrudes, an imaginary order that emerges from something that we might call the here and now of the all in becoming, a kind of presence that only animals experience, bioanimality. All of this is baked into a repression. The reason why I'm pointing this out. Is because if the psychotic forecloses the name of the father, if the pervert disavows it, and the neurotic represses it, let's be clear about that. Repression includes and has baked into it an acceptance of the thing that is repressed, an acknowledgement or affirmation of its existence, and then a negation that can then be repressed. In order to repress something, you have to acknowledge its existence as something out there in the world with an effect that is dangerous to you. The psychotic doesn't even acknowledge that shit. If you're interested in this,
1: we can just take the detour and I can walk you through each of these steps. Otherwise, we'll just move on. This would be... the the a priori structure of repression. But we don't need to get into that. We've got other stuff to talk about.
0: So again, what you see here with this little a, this is just the marker. It's just an algebraic sign that Lacan has chosen to designate this opening. Really to mark any sort of opening, an irreducible distance between any two entities that allows them to remain distinct. I can't get that enough. Okay, let's pause for a couple more questions um, about anything that you've heard in the past few minutes, and
1: then we'll look to take a little bit of a break. I don't know if this is so much a question, but I keep, and you kind of touched it, um, but I keep going between the lack as lost versus having been taken, right? Because when we tie it back to castration, right, it's not something that's just like, oh, wait, where did that go? Right, it was removed. And then after that, in the void, like the opening of the thing that was removed, and I think that feels like a pretty critical distinction. Yeah something, someone or thing negated that from me. It wasn't just uh, clumsy or, you know, sort of like unforeseen, un- big-wise
0: situation. Brilliant, yeah. This is really one of the key conceptual moves that Lacan makes. And the question here is, did you have something at one point that was then taken from
1: you? And that is now lost? Or does the experience of loss itself retroactively figure this thing? In other words, were we once in Eden and then we got kicked out? Were
0: we in this uteromorphic space of becoming? and bliss, and then language and society took that from us. And that that wholeness is now something that we lost. Lacan's answer is no. You didn't have that shit. Because you were that shit. Here's that split again between having and being. You didn't have Eden and then it was taken from you. You were that, and the only reason why I know you were that is because you feel like it's been taken from you now on the other side. It's the experience of loss, not the fact of losing something that interests Lacan. And here's the deal. We don't need to get, up, we don't need to get too caught up in this, but what is denied and prohibited when the paternal function
1: comes in is any furthering of life without prohibition. That's the deal.
0: You can't just pretend like that shit didn't happen, which is exactly what the psychotic does. Foreclosure is that didn't happen. It's, it's like repression on crank. It's something completely different. It's not even an acknowledgement that the thing occurred. It's that didn't even happen. The neurotic represses something that they fundamentally accept as occurring which is this basic prohibition the name of the father is the no of the father and it's a prohibition against any more life without prohibition and so in other words you're living your life your bio animal existence and then there is a big fat no this is crude but it gets to the point A big fat no introduced. You can't keep crying and expect to have your needs met. The kid is like, wait, what? And the parent says, no, you have to use words now. Holy shit. From that moment forward, the child is divided and has a choice. I can either keep crying and get in trouble, or I can use my words and maybe get what I think I need. Prior to that big fat no, There was only one path forward. But it wasn't experienced as a path because it was the only thing you knew. You were the here and now of becoming.
1: The lizard was the rock, and the rock the lizard. It's only with the advent of the
0: symbolic, with the name of the father, that there is a distance imposed, introduced between these entities. It's the world of words, Lacan says, that engenders and creates the world of things. Before the world of words, it was just all of this shit in the imminent here and now of pure presence, bio-animal fluid shit which is not the same as consciousness. You were not aware of that. I was not aware of that. I only become aware of that retrospectively. It's a presupposed place. So think about it. What is your earliest memory? How old were you? Three, four, five. Let's say you were three years old. You've got a great memory. Your first memory is when you were three years old. Were you born three years old? Hell no. You were born zero years old. And you survived for three years before anything like a memory popped up in your mind. Those three years are not three years of awareness. They are three years of animality. It's only in the hindsight of later years when you can look back and discern your first memory,
1: a memory that began at the age of three, full well knowing that you weren't born at that age.
0: So you presuppose some sort of human experience from years zero to three. It doesn't mean that you have any memory or recollection of that experience. You might see a picture here or there. To prove it, Lacan's point is, it's only with the advent of split subjectivity and the introduction into language that you can look back and imagine at a a fantastical level
1: what it might have been like before, what it was like back in the day but it is a fantasy. It is a fantasy of wholeness that is always experienced as loss. And I wanna
0: make the difference here very simple before we take a break. The difference that Chaim is working out here is between the word loss, L-O-S-S, and lost, L-O-S-T. It's the experience of being at a loss, of feeling like something is off, that elicits the fantasy that someday we might be complete and whole. And it's a fantasy that has a retrospective hook, because it suggests that this is not just a becoming something that we never were, but a return to a uteromorphic state of prelinguistic bliss. But that is a fantasy. In fact, if you ask me, bioanimality is a horrific, terrifying place to be. Like, think about that shit. You have zero motor skills, but by six months, you have an elaborate perceptual apparatus. You can basically see people walking around and almost stepping on your ass and not being able to do anything about it. At some level, you can see the world around you,
1: and yet you have no ability to affect it. I can't imagine a more vulnerable state.
0: Regardless, all I can do is imagine it because I have no memory of it. It doesn't mean it didn't occur. It just means that in order for me to experience it,
1: I can only experience it at the level of the imaginary. And some people would say that's even
0: exactly what the imagination is. It is a desensing of one's umwelt, the world around you. A desensing, a transforming of it into images. This is the, this is the Augustine tradition all the way up to Kant. The imagination is an, an imaging of the world. You desense it, leaving images behind. Images that can then become food for thought, which, was, which were known as memories. Memories were the food of thought, and memories were images of the world desensed. But that's another discussion. For our purposes, I think it's important to just remember the difference between the experience and the feeling of loss, the experience of losing something. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our
1: podcast theme music.